You're listening to audio from the Branch Church Milledgeville. If you would like to learn more about our church, what we do, or who we are, please visit tbcmilledgeville.com. If you're located in the central Georgia area, please consider joining us for worship at 730 North Wayne Street in Milledgeville, Georgia, on Sundays with fellowship beginning at 10 a.m. and worship kicking off at 1030. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. As you've taken a seat, if you will, join me in John 15. As we close out the chapter this morning with verses 12 through 27. Again, it's John 15, verses 12 through 27. Uh, if you notice, hopefully on your bulletin there, um, our sort of main point is a solid starting point for us and something that we need to recognize as we understand the application of our verses this morning. Uh, That main point being that being the body of Christ will bear fruit in any valley. Um, No, that is not a typo. I did not intend to put being in the body of Christ will bear fruit in any valley. But being the body of Christ will bear fruit in any valley. In the arc of our text this morning, we're going to see sort of two sections. The first being the Father's love for His children. The second being the world's hatred of our Savior. Um, and, and both of these together and the common thread throughout, I believe, will show us a clear picture on what it looks like to actually be the body of Christ, not just be in the body of Christ. Um, if you were with us at Olive Hill this past Sunday evening, I believe it was, right? Wow, feels like forever ago. This past Sunday evening, um, I had the opportunity to sort of preach on what is the church, what is the church's role. Um, and so for us this morning, I feel like it's a good place to start in understanding, especially today, can you see uh, new members confirmed into our church, uh, one baptized. It's really vital to understand that the church itself is an active body that is comprised by its Savior. It is moving always, it is always growing This is a painful process, but there are plenty of things that it is not. One is inactive. One is a country club. If you've heard me say this before, it is not a place where you come and pay dues by way of your prayers, taking of the Lord's Supper. It is a family. It's the body of Christ. It means it's founded on Christ. It means it follows Christ. It lives as Christ. All of the purpose and function of the church is Christ. And we'll see that this morning the example that Christ lays out for us as he continues to speak to his disciples approaching crucifixion. And so if you will, join me in prayer of our text this morning, our time in the word, that we would come away actually believing our overarching statement here, that in any valley that's here, that's overseas, that's anywhere, that where the body of Christ is the body of Christ and it moves accordingly and it follows its king, it will bear fruit. It is by God's design There's no thwarting this. There's no most difficult field of ministry that can undo what Christ has already said will pass. Everything God has ordained will come to pass. And this morning, I feel it will be a great encouragement to see all that has happened in the life of the church and what will happen. So join me in prayer to that end. Father, if you will, be with us this morning as we know you are, as you promised that as we gather to worship you, We know that you are here, you are shaping us, 
And so I only pray that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would be shaped, that we would trust it is what you're doing in our lives, and that whatever it is we are holding on that is not you, or holding all the more closely that is not you, that you would kindly rid us of that, of any idols now, that we would lay aside every weight now, and instead sit as children at your feet, ready to hear from you, to learn from you, and to love you all the more. We pray this in Christ's name, according to your will. By the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would, read with me verses 12 through 17 here. Christ picks up where he left off last week, seeing verses 10 and 11. I'll read through 17. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So verse 12 here begins with a summation of all that Christ has commanded. This is not a new commandment that does away with every old commandment. This is a summation and not all that has Christ, all that Christ has said in his earthly ministry and over and over with his disciples here. So verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Christ's commandment here in verse 12 is a mirror copy of the great commandment in Matthew, that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, our whole being, and the second is like it, that we should love one another as the same. So Christ's summation here in loving one another as he has loved us gives us a foundation on which we can obediently live as Christians. Um, Oftentimes, especially in sort of new age evangelism, it's portrayed in such a way that Christ's commandment here is new and sort of rids us of any burden of the law, of obeying God. On the other hand, if you've heard this before, and it might sound taboo at first, uh, St. Augustine sums it up this way. He says, love God and do what you want. And at first, the thought might be, there's plenty of people who take that and apply it incredibly wrong. Uh, even ourselves at some points in our lives. But we have to understand and unpack what it actually means to love God, right? And if we do that and get down to the bones of it, we'll see that as we love God, there is plenty that we deny from ourselves so that we can actually love God. And in doing so, we complete that second half of doing what we want. It's just to show that the Christian life is not a do's and don'ts where we're carrying around shackles on our feet. We're actually running the only people in this life, in this world, who are running after something. That's our Savior. Now, any commandment we have thereafter can be summarized in this, that we love Christ as he, loved, as he has loved us, and that we love one another the same. Now, continuing here, in verse 13 and on, it's important to recognize that the true presence of God's mercy brings external evidence, not just an internal feeling. 
It's easy to hear of the love of God and perhaps consider how much we love God back or how much we love one another. Um, but if you're married or hope to be one day and perhaps have seen shadows of this, um, it does you no benefit to say you love somebody and not show it. I mean, you're made to be a liar. In the same way, I just love this illustration um, I heard from a mentor growing up. He, he said it this way, if a Christian were to say they are a Christian but not live as a Christian, you would think they're not a Christian. In the same sense, if a vegan walked up to you eating a Big Mac and said they were a vegan, it would be safe to deduce they're not a vegan. So for us to say that we love God and to see the example of the disciples here who have been loved by God, if we do not love as God, not that we are the big G God, but as those who have been loved by God, then we must pause and consider whether or not we truly understand and comprehend the love of God. As we see here that this love will bear fruit. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's important to note here just how Jesus rounded up these disciples. If you remember, just a couple of examples that they were busy doing whatever it was that made them busy, whether it was fishing, working with their hands, fellowshipping with their families. And when Christ came into their lives and said, drop everything and follow me, and they did so, it was first then that they understood or at least began to see the love that the Savior had for them. Just to even consider that Christ was going on his way and saw what were probably some raggedy-looking men who were dirty from work and were told to follow the Savior of the universe. It's quite humbling to imagine. And we see in verse 14 that Christ calls them friends. This used to make me so uncomfortable. I used to think of it as just this Baptist adage that Southern folks said to feel good. A friend of sinners, Christ is. But seeing it here in the text and understanding all that Christ had led these disciples through and all that he had taught them through their faithlessness and their wimbling, and yet still Christ was faithful and teaching them and loving them. And just how much it may well up in the disciples' hearts to hear this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Now we, on the other hand, are without excuse. We know exactly what the master is doing. Just as the disciples were following and learning and knowing what the master is doing, and as they have been told on the heels, or rather on the forefront of this text, that Christ would send a helper, that Christ would establish his kingdom, that he would be crucified, he would ascend. They know exactly what's about to happen And so by all means, they still serve the Lord. We still serve the Lord, right? We are not upgraded to some new heavenly rank where we're without our duty to serve. But we are called friends, as Christ is a friend to us, and that we understand what he is doing. As I was prepping, it kind of left me with this understanding and this feeling that much of our inactivity as Christians, we often root in a claim of ignorance. Whether it be we don't know how stepping out in faith will result, whether it be a new job, whether it be an evangelism, 
or we don't necessarily trust that it may go the way we think it will, whether it be speaking boldly to a family member that may strain a relationship, whether it may be denying ourselves something that we really enjoy, that we know we'd probably be better off without. Well, the fact of the matter is that we have plenty of promises of God that we may oftentimes turn a blind eye to if it means we can be a little more comfortable. What this Bible does for us, among many things, is it takes sort of that rug out from under us and leaves us without any room to claim ignorance. Now, there's plenty that we will not understand about God until we see him face to face. But much like Spurgeon, I would count his grace to be at the top of that list and understanding how he could love sinners. On the other hand, how he will establish his kingdom on earth, that is plain to see. He will do so through the preaching of his word, and he will raise up those who will preach his word and live out his word, and it will bring change. It's that simple. Now, I'm not foolish, and neither are you guys, to understand that that does not come without its trials, as the church is built on the blood of martyrs and the first disciples. But it is indeed that simple, just as is the salvation that was secured for us by the love of God being met by his wrath in the person of Christ. For us to understand the parallel here between the vine and ourselves as the church, in verse 16 again, that you should bear fruit. Just as one would look on a vine to see if it possesses grapes, to know whether or not it's healthy, so do we look to one another, look to ourselves, and so does the world look at Christians to see if there is any Christianity. I was with some of the fellows last night watching some fights that didn't really pan out in UFC. It was kind of a bummer. And we were discussing uh, Chris Pratt. Uh, he's kind of in the limelight uh, here and there for making some Christianese statements about some things here and there. Uh, and his, one of his latest was, um, I'm not religious, but man, I love Christ. And it was laughable. And one of us in the moment uh, said, I got bad news for you, Chris. That means you're religious. <laughs> uh, we need to understand that what it means to live out our faith means it is to be religious. And I'll take a little bit of time to unpack this, okay? This does not mean that we are cold and cathartic and that we live out our faith as if it came from a textbook. It means that we are purposed, we are appointed, and we take the time to understand exactly how it is we should live out the faith that has been granted to us. This is, by definition, religion. Everybody is religious. Even atheists are religious. They live according to a code. We live according to a king who has given us a helper that we can understand his word, understand what he has called us to do, and then do it. And so then, the summary of verse 16 seems quite plain. Christ chose us. Christ appointed us. Christ will see that we bear fruit. If you've ever questioned your salvation, I hope that you would sit and understand exactly who it is that saved you, how he saved you, and how he continues to sanctify you. And understand, if you indeed find yourself to be helpless, that you would give praise that you are helpless. And that instead you have a great helper. One who has never left you and never will. I can imagine the disciples in this instance who have just been told again and are probably still reeling from the news that Christ is about to leave. 
and to hear in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. All the memories that came rushing back for them. All the times where they perhaps did not choose Christ, Peter himself, where he will about or soon deny Christ, where he will not choose him before the world. But to understand their appointment, to go and bear fruit. This does not mean that our appointment is to go and have the loftiest jobs. It does not mean that we go and have the flashiest lives. Instead, it means that we go as a saved people and see that others are saved by the grace of God. Whatever means we do that by are simply God's mercy. Whatever job you hold is a mission field. Whatever family you have now and have one day is a mission field. Anything in your life is a gift, and every gift that we have should be leveraged for the glory of God. There's nothing we have that we earned or that is our own. And that should mean that we take great care of not holding on too tightly of anything in this life except Christ who holds tightly to us. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Anytime we hold too tightly to our life as our own or neglect anything as a gift, it gets in the way of us loving one another as we are called to do. First and foremost of things that may obstruct this is our false understanding of our time. Our time. That it is actually ours to spend. Now, we all have a schedule and we all have plenty of responsibilities. Some more than others, but all of us are growing into increased responsibility. If you continue to live, your responsibilities grow from, I don't know, taxes, changing diapers, you throw it on the list. There's more on your plate as you live. And that is a gift of God. <laughs> as I relearned that up here saying it. Okay? <laughs> but my point in saying this is for us to understand that these commandments are not things that should be burdensome to us, but instead we should recognize as the very thing that sets us free. It's God's good will to please his children, okay? It's God's good will to please his children, and it is God's providence to ensure that they are most pleased in him. These two are not at odds. I used to consider sanctification as a sort of gnashing of teeth here on earth where we would gain blessings and lose blessings and uh, be forced to fall back on Christ. And the more I get to live this life, the more I get to share in Christ's sufferings and see his blessings, it's actually the opposite that I find, that it is his good will to please his children, as we see here, again in verse 16, on the cap of that, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Practically what this looks like is that when I go before God and I pray that he would make me a faithful husband, that he would make me a leader of a father, that that is not out of line with his will, and because of that, he will do that. He will do that. So then, as you go before God and pray that he will make you faithful in evangelism, that he will give you opportunity to evangelize, is that outside of his will? No, it is not. So he will do that. Now, how he will do that is often what takes us by surprise. When we pray unto God to make us bold, he may present us with opportunity where we could instead be quick to be faint in our faith. 
where we pray unto God that he would make us trusting. He may take away something that we are leaning too heavily on and see just how much we trust him. God is not evil. God is not unkind in doing this. He gives us exactly what it is we need. And it is always himself. If you take anything, hopefully take a couple things, but today I pray that you would take that. It's his goodwill to please you as his child. And it's his providence in making sure that you are most pleased in himself. Anything that gets between us and God, no matter how good it may seem or how well-intentioned we may be in handling it, if it is between us and God, it will be removed. And that is God's grace to us. Consider your own salvation and whatever it was in life that was right between you and God of yourself and perhaps how painful it was for that thorn to be removed. But how much more calming and soothing right relationship with God is. Even now there is plenty in our lives that sticks in our flesh that hurts to be removed. But God is good in removing every thorn. And please hear me say this. He is just as good, and perhaps we can see his goodness all the more in the thorns that he does not remove. As he's saying this to his disciples, he is still going to be crucified. Darkness still will fall. His disciples still will feel lost. But he does not leave them as orphans, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, and he does not leave them without marching orders. He leaves them with his love, and their love is what his love is what they are to show. Read with me verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Church, we are indeed sheep among wolves. We cannot forget this. No matter how shiny the world is or how comfortable it may be, we are a living people in a valley of dry bones. Every coworker you see that does not know God is dead in sin. Every family member that you know that does not know God is dead in sin. No matter how happy the richest man on earth may be if he does not know God is dead in sin. This life will be difficult. It is difficult enough, but it will be worshipful. It will be worshipful. And part of that worshiping is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, but if you would flip a couple pages to John 19, 1 through 7. John 19, verses 1 through 7. It's often easy to see verse 18 here in John 15, where it reads, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's easy to sort of just, um, I guess, paraphrase that in our minds and think, yes, Christ went against the grain, Um, he was beaten, he was bruised, he died for me. But I find it's, it's probably more beneficial for us to see the account of that in Scripture. John 19, verses 1 through 7. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head 
and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Not only the world hated Christ, but his own people he came to save hated him. The Jews shouted, crucify him, crucify him. A chosen race betraying their king. The world did indeed hate our Savior, and they will hate us. It is only God's grace that that hate does not result in a cross and flogging and a crown of thorns and a burial behind a stone, just as Christ did. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Church family, brothers and sisters, there should be perhaps no greater fear in this life, apart from perhaps being without God and his kindness, than to be loved by the world. This world has nothing for you. None of its niceties, none of its extravagances, nothing. Not being in good friendship with those who hate God, nothing. Now, alternatively, what does this mean? Does this mean we go and perhaps carry out what we believe to be a faithful crusade and command war with the world? No, no. The sword is not ours to wield. But it does mean we recognize there is already a war happening. We just can't see it. There are people whose souls are being thrown to and fro every single day by the whims of the world. And as you walk among them, yours is held steadfast on the only cornerstone that we can have in the person of Christ. Nevertheless, I pray and ask you all that you would not trade peace with God to have peace with this world. That you would stand up quite plainly for what is right. And practically speaking, that we would call a man a man. That we would call a woman a woman. That we should protect women. That we should protect children. That men should lead and stick around in their mistakes and make them right. There are so many instances of this being broken and the world hurting for it. One, quite plainly, was the recent shooting in Texas where men who are charged to protect instead stand by while a kid without a dad lashed out. Send, killed. And then a husband who gets a text from his wife, 
His bride rushes to the scene and is held back for only so long by other men who have the same charge as him to protect. This is not to be political. This is to point out that Christianity has principles. And when Christians live out these principles, the community that they are in benefits. That when men are faithful husbands, that there is a genealogy that is established that leads to legacy of faithfulness. That's how we get generational faithfulness is by men staying with their wives with whom they have children. It would be remiss, again, to not point out with the blessing that is Roe v. Wade being overturned that there is quite a battle left to be fought. And the answer, truly, church, I believe this and I hope that you would believe it, that the world could benefit from is a biblical sexual ethic that we could perhaps bring back the reasoning that marriage means you can have sex and no other time. And there is plain cause for that because within the confines of marriage, you are bound to that person forever. So then if you have a child, you can have a child and stay together and fight to provide however you can. And nevertheless, where there are cracks and a society that does not know God, God's grace covers every single one of them. It is such a blessing to see the cries of those who are for the murder of the unborn and saying to Christians or perhaps churches saying, what will you do? Will you adopt the children in the church to say, yes, we have been for years now. We're actually leading in adoptions. Well, well, what about the ones in orphanages? What, what about them? Yes, we will take them to see pastors and faithful men go to abortion mills and adopt children on the spot. Don't get this confused. While the church has its blemishes, it is being purified by the one who has founded it, being Christ. And it is affecting the world. And just because the world is dark does not mean that light is not shining. It is. And it does not mean that the sky won't break open at Christ's return and light will be the only thing anyone sees. Friends, church family, Christ is reigning now. The victory is secure. So any suffering that we undergo is simply pruning of ourselves so that when we get to eternity, we can worship without bounds. And while we are here on this earth, we make sure that others can do the same. I apologize for that rabbit hole, but it is quite a passion of mine that we understand that Christianity, again, is not a country club and that our salvation is not a plastic sword, as other brothers have said before. It is not that our theology is shut up behind a glass case for us to simply read about and discuss in some academic model, but that we are an active body that moves and seeks and saves and builds and rescues and adopts and all of these things. This is the church, this is us, this is you all. That we live out our faith, and as we do so, we see that the world is upset. One of my favorite memories, probably forever, when we were doing the men's study uh, that Dad was teaching through is when we got to sit on Paul and the apostles and how they upset the world. Now, don't go be anarchists. Um, some of you have heard me say this, the movie Fight Club, it is inappropriate, but when I saw it before I was saved, it really was shaping 
this idea of upsetting the status quo and putting bombs and bars of soap. I was not an anarchist. I didn't do that. didn't try to. Okay. Don't be worried. Apple don't flag us anything. Okay. But it was sort of enticing to see that there is something broken in the world and something being done to fix it. And little did I know that was just the call of the gospel. But consider that, as funny as that is to see or imagine 13-year-old angsty Bailey watching Brad Pitt in Fight Club and think, wow, wow. I had only ever grown up in the cotton-handed, soft form of Southern Baptist Christianity. The sharpest example I saw was in my dad and the guy who discipled him. I didn't know that Christianity was actually supposed to interact and change the world around it. I just thought that there was some guy who paid to have his sermons get up there and give them in a suit. I didn't know. I didn't know that youth group wasn't the end-all be-all or that your summer crushes wouldn't last forever and I didn't know that a prayer didn't save you or I didn't know. I didn't know that VBS wasn't an extension of Billy Graham's Great Crusades. I, I didn't understand that Faith was supposed to be sharp enough to pierce me and those around me. And perhaps many of you have that same story and just didn't know. But when we know, just as we'll see in our next section here, there's only one thing we can do about it, and it's to fall in line and march wherever we are. Read with me verses 22 through 27. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Being loved by God means we will show God's love. And as we live in Christ's victory, we will share in his sufferings. Just as Christ came and lived, his very presence divided sin and his sheep. Now, perhaps a surface level reading of this may bring us to think, well, If they weren't condemned in their sin before Christ showed up, then why do you show up? That is not what is happening here. Christ's very presence lifts every single cloak of man. And so when he came and walked, he was indeed indeed fulfilling the law. And just as John 3.16 is well known by the world, 18 through 19, is often neglected, shows that as the light came into the world, it did not come to condemn the world, but instead to reveal those who have already been condemned. That as he was standing in front of sinners, and as we saw in plenty of times after many miracles that he works in John, it was not that he came to condemn them as sinners. It was that he came to be a living mirror for them to see that they are condemned as sinners. So when these verses are saying, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. I much more love the footnote here. If you have it in your text, you see a little too maybe. The original Greek says that they would not have sin. It's more so to say that they would not know sin. They would get to continue on in ignorance and perhaps find out about their sin on the final day when they see the Father face to face. There are plenty in our lives 
who perhaps fit in this category, who don't know sin, or in other words, perhaps don't know explicitly that they hate God, that they hate God. And perhaps they only know it as that they love free time and they love what they consider to be freedom. They love vices. They love laziness. They love themselves. Nevertheless, this is part of our mission here that we are not content with others being content in death. That we are not content with others being dead in sin. That just shouldn't sit right with us. It just shouldn't. It's, it's often easy, especially in the Reformed Baptist side of things, I think, to sort of sit back and watch the proverbial house on fire and think, sit back and think, well, I mean, if only they knew better. And even in, in one another's lives, as difficult as brotherhood and sisterhood may be in the process of collective sanctification as a body, to sit back at times and think, well, I mean, we've had this conversation two months in a row now. I should know better by now. Folks, that's why we're in each other's lives. I mean, what other reason are we collectively together as the body of Christ except to sharpen one another, build one another up? None of us have a disposition where we get to sit back and sort of look on. We're in the burning house too. And we have the only thing that can put the fire out. That's the gospel. It's awfully presumptuous of us to even sit back and look at the culture and say, well, that's what they get. And that is what they get. But we must go and interrupt that process of sin and show them salvation in Christ. It's easy to look back on this and the next generation of boys being raised without men as fathers and say, well, I mean, they'll get what they reap. They will, and that's the problem. And we have the solution. We must take an active role in being responsible in God's creation. And not just over our little corner of it. The church should not just be confined into the four walls that God gives it to gather. It should be a launching pad. I said earlier that we are indeed sheep among wolves, and that is true. And we're gifted by God's grace to have places where we can be sort of gathered together, sort of sheepdogged in. Matt, I say that right? I feel like you know a little bit more about that than me to be gathered together, to be rejuvenated, to be built back up. And we get that through our accountability, through our fellowship now, through our fellowship throughout the week in MCs. But folks, every time, think about this, that we are not here, and I mean here, and any of those facets that I just mentioned, we are among those who need what we have. And even now, as we're among each other, as college folks, as you live together, as our couples who live together, wife and wife and husband, right? Couples who don't live together yet. We need what one another has. And that is the gospel. Okay? Gospel is not just there sitting on a shelf. It is permeating through everything. You can circle everything that is broken back to the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ's interaction with sinners here in our verses does not condemn them and instead reveals their condemnation. But all the same, Christ's interaction with sinners who are his sheep reveals to them the salvation that is awaiting for them. So that when we go out among the lost, we should have a mindset such as this, that we have brothers and sisters who do not know our Father yet, 
Do you understand that? That when we go out and when we witness, it's not just a church project. It's not just something that we do. It is not sort of a half-hearted, well, maybe someone will listen. No, we need to have the purposed intention that we are going out amongst our brothers and sisters who don't know that they are in a wrong disposition with God the Father. I mean, and then how much more sweeter is the celebration when we see a brother or sister come to understand that they must be in right standing with our Father. That is what makes salvation so sweet, that we see God's grace correcting what has been broken, that we see our Heavenly Father correcting what our forefather, Adam, broke. I love the parallel here. Uh, Hopefully you kept your thumb or bookmarker in John 19. But if you see here in verse 25, but the word, or not verse 25, yeah, verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. John 19, verse 7, I'll mark it down. The Jews answered him, answered Pilate, that is, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. It will never not astound me to see how God directs foolish men to execute his highest calling, which is his will. The Jews did indeed know about a law, and although they had hate in their heart and carried out with malicious intent, they failed to miss what Christ clearly understood, that the law must be fulfilled. This was to say that Christ had to die. While he was indeed innocent and hated without cause, he had to die. He was our propitiation. He was our Savior. The law had to be passed. That is to say that sin had to have had a Savior. Had to have had a sacrifice. And Christ was the perfect one. The only one. Yet the story is not over for the disciples of the church. In verse 26 and 27, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's easy to sort of hear, I don't know, perhaps some of the things that you've heard this morning and consider maybe how the church is to change the world. The church changed the world. It is my personal belief and conviction that this will not happen overnight. And it will not happen as sort of an explosion. But I do believe it will happen. And why do I believe that, you ask? Because God has said it will. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1. How then does the church change the world? How can we have confidence Not to oversimplify it, but perhaps to give us a practical framework for how this happens uh, through the lens of Scripture, is that I believe the church will, is, and will change the world by not neglecting to gather together, by building one another up, by following through with the good works that they were given, the opportunities ahead of them, whether it be to adopt children, to care for them for a time to be a form of spiritual father or mother in the lives of others who have children, whether it be family or friends, to have jobs and to work them full-heartedly with Christian excellence, 
to be distinctive in the world. To be a city among a hill, to be a light without a lampshade. All these things that just kind of sound like bumper stickers, but then when you actually consider the implications of what would happen if the church lived them out, it is radical impact. And, and the best news is, for some anyway, that doesn't mean you sell everything, that doesn't mean you jump overseas. For some, others, that will have that call. Instead of what it means is that you live out a, sexual, a biblical sexual ethic, that you exercise discipline, that one day, if possible, you do fill a home. And if not with family, with friends, that you worship together, that you enjoy God's goodness, that you are most pleased by God. The simple call of faithfulness, hundreds of thousands of millions, little steps toward the kingdom. Psalm 110.1 gives us a picture of the confidence that we can have when we meet opposition and understanding that any who stand against our Father, that any who do not know God, that any who would propagate for the murder of the unborn, for an uprooting of the home as it is understood biblically, for the reversal of gender roles, for the reversal of gender at all, that Psalm 110.1 gives us a picture of exactly their, their result. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Church family, the fools of the world are nothing more but eternal furniture for our Savior. It's not a place for us to sit and scoff from. It's something that should spur us to action. That as we go out this week and as we close with our worship here, again, as we get to see members join in covenanting as a body together and one baptized, that we should understand that this is not just confined to here. That doesn't just stay here but that all of our lives overflows into every area of our life. That the world that we live in is God's and we should do our part in making sure that we worship accordingly. That we go out of here understanding that those we come across are perhaps brothers and sisters who do not know our Father yet. And we do what we can to right that wrong. That we go out and understand that every single one of us will have hurt this week. And that we all share collectively in the responsibility of laying those hurts at our Father's feet and our brothers and sisters as we carry one another to God. That we go out and understand the call of sacrifice and understand the greatest one that was ever given on our behalf being Christ. And so then any denial of ourself should come light and easy if it means we are in right relationship with God. That we go out resolute, unwilling to compromise on what gives us peace with our Father that is his love for us, our love for him, and our love for one another. Amen. Father, if you would be with us as we continue to worship now and as we go out this week to further understand that you are indeed working and that as we work and as we stumble and as we fall, you indeed pick us up and allow us to continue to press on that we do indeed have a great helper, the Spirit, that's changing us every single day. And God, while we may be uncomfortable in change, I pray that we would never hold 
too tightly to our flesh that it would harm our faith. That as we we're being changed into your image, that we would rejoice in that, that we would be quick to let go of anything that would hold us back, but that we would never let go of you, that we would understand you never let go of us. And as we walk on, I pray that we would do that arm in arm as brothers and sisters, understanding that we have been saved through a body as your church, and that we are not alone in this, always with you, and you always with all of us. We pray this in Christ's name, according to your will, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.